0: Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapham Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm doing the Mount Rushmore of World Football. I think with football a lot of the time you end up, when trying to categorise players, you end up with things such as lists, or greatest eleven ever, or who is the greatest. It usually ends up being an argument between Maradona and Pele. And it always and there's always some element of voting in it, like at FIFA level, or even if it's a pub discussion, it ends up being somewhat adversarial and technical. In other words, you have to end up basically disparaging one player to basically make your argument. the The other was better. In other words, you say that the teams that Maradona was in were nowhere near as talented as, let's say, the Brazilian teams that Pele played in. I think what you know doing the Mount Rushmore of world football does is that it. it Ends up, you end up having to tell a story, and you end up having to essentially say why that person deserves to be up there at the absolute pinnacle, why player A is better than player B, and what that player A means in terms of their legacy. And what, and then you, you can sort of plot a history of football, and not only are you, you basically arguing for that player, you're also basically trying to put them into some kind of context in a way that A, a is better than B doesn't really give you that kind of opportunity. So, naturally, it's quite easy to basically guess who the first two players are going to be on the list. It's obviously going to be Pelé and Maradona. But, I think, to start off with Pelé, I think you have to put into context what Brazilian football means. It's actually quite complicated. There's lots of different moving pieces. It's fascinating once you actually get into It's that, probably unlike any other country, it's football has an element of being political in brazil and unpolitical so in the sense that it's political is that it it, football has been used as a way of of global power projection so in other words the dictatorship that was running brazil in you know with the 1950 world cup they wanted to show the stadiums and what brazil was capable of and what its future was trending in the the direction of and as a result for them the, the they wanted not they wanted to win the tournament and to the for the tournament to be a fantastic success to sort of show what they were capable and what the country was but also the element that is unpolitical is really where is what it offers in the sense that it unites quite a disparate country so you've got you know the, the coastal areas rio sao paulo but then you've got the interior which is very quite rural and amazonian it's completely you, know, you you can go from one end to the other of the country it's a huge country as well and for what football offers is the chance that it unites that country and you know regardless of race and class and it it also gives a sort of link to you know europe and the and the rest of the world and that's very powerful and that's and in the sense that what's happened is is that you know from really 1950 onwards national pride It's hugely invested in the Brazilian national team in a way that it isn't, I don't think there's another country that is quite, it's not as important as it is in Brazil. So, you can't have a discussion about Brazilian football without starting at the Maracanãs. so the Maracana Nightmare. So it's 1950 and Brazil are hosting the World Cup. Essentially, they they did a quite an interesting way of running the tournament. So They had Group A, Group B, and there wasn't basically essentially no final planned. So by just sheer luck, it just turns out that the final game is Uruguay versus Brazil. And if Uruguay win, they win the tournament. If Brazil win or draw, they win the tournament. So it becomes in effect a de facto final, and. Yeah, the American eyes about two hundred thousand people, vast majority, want were locals wanted Brazil to win, and this was going to be the pinnacle. It's going to be the first time they hosted the World Cup. It was going to be the first time they won the World Cup. It, you couldn't you couldn't have scripted it better. and They're playing against a you know a local rival in the sense that Uruguay won the first World Cup in nineteen thirty, but they lose to a late error by the goalkeeper. They lose two one. They lose the World Cup, and it's just. A complete disaster. And it just... And it's one of the most interesting things. It it just really burns an absolute hole. And it's never really been fully filled. In the sense that when Brazil first started playing international football, they just wore a white. And, you know, there was nothing wrong with that. But something about that defeat, they just needed to make some kind of psychological change. So they decide that they're going to change the kit. Now, usually, yeah, you know, that would just be done by some FA bibwig. Maybe they've just basically get the local artist. They would do it. They they go do it slightly differently. If you think it's only the early 1950s, so there's nothing. There's no money side of it, so they just decide to have a national competition for t- to design the kit and pick out a winner. the the the, guy, the person that wins is actually a Uruguayan that lives pretty much on you know the Uruguayan side of the border, but he I think he'd lived in Brazil for quite a while, and um, where well, he was from. That pop, from Uruguay, but live in Brazil. And he ends up picking up the wi- the winning thing, which is the iconic Brazil kit. So you have the yellow shirt, the, the green trim, the blue shorts with the white piping, and the white socks, and... Basically, it matches the Brazilian flag, and the Brazilian flag is a very symbolic flag. The idea is it's supposed to basically cover every single bit of you know, Brazil, 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 uh, Brazilian culture. So you're talking about the green, which is like the, the, the Amazon side of things. You've then got the, the yellow for the sand and the sun, and the blue for the sea, and, it's, you know, the, and the, the white stars for all of the you know, various states. So that's something that's very, very deeply important to them. And in the end, the kit becomes iconic and very symbolic. And so, you know, it's one of the interesting things. If they had won that World Cup, so in 1950, you know, let's play counterfactual, they would have then, you know, you, they would still dominated football in the 50s and 60s. And I think in the end, they would have ended up being sort of compared to Real Madrid in a way. So both of those, both the dominant teams of the early the 50s and the 60s, would be beautiful teams, fantastic skill, monolithic white kits, whereby I think what happens is, is that because the Brazilian kit in comparison with every other sort of international kit of the time, is so interesting and it's so bright and colorful that it becomes something more it grows in your imagination when or it only takes seconds in in any football fan's mind to imagine the Brazilian kit and what it symbolizes and so what i 'd say is is that. So you have the nightmare of 1950 and eventually, but the 1950 World Cup has more in common with the 1938 World Cup than it does, let's say, than it does, let's say, the 66 World Cup. Because it's, it's still some, you know, football is still, it's pro but not super professional. In that sense. It's still, you know, the, the, the tactical revolution hasn't quite happened yet. It's still very much end to end, there's always lots of goals. And eventually, if there's always a lot of debate between what's the first modern World Cup. Now, the first modern World Cup for me is 1970 because that's the first one where there's an element of commerciality to it. In other words, some they decide to play the 1970 World Cup. In Mexico, but in the middle of the day at the hottest time of the day, which is just suicide in terms of the football because it's just insanely hot you know they don't have any of the modern sort of cooling techniques you know the the shirts the players are wearing are just you know they're not designed to be played in in that kind of heat, but they do it because it's the first World cup that's going to be shown in color in Europe, and they want the you know and because the TV rights have been paid for. They want it where there's going to be the maximum optimal television viewing in Europe, which means you have to play it during the day. 66 has some of those qualities, but not quite. It's you know it's still, you know, television's there, but it's not the be-all and end-all, where it is a lot more in 70. But in terms of where the first modern World Cup, in terms of media, the first one where people could interact in a way that, you or I would understand, It's probably 58. Because in 58, you know, it's in Sweden, and that's where, and there's television coverage of it, footage of it, you can still watch it now on YouTube and all the rest of it, where in 50 and 54, that's not really the case. And that's where Pele makes his debut as a 17-year-old. And he's immensely powerful, pacey, graceful, brilliant finisher, fantastic touch. And he, he's almost as if, Someone has plopped got a modern football player and plopped it in nineteen fifty eight, and the the rest of the team are fantastic as well. You know you have players like Garrincha and, and effectively, what the Brazil teams of fifty eight to seventy, is that they're early adapters. They're they're almost the, in the sense that they're a club side that's playing at international level, and as a result. They suit the era and they sort of transcend at the same time. In the terms of the way how they define it is, is that, like I said earlier, football was still growing tactically. The form, you know, it was far more attacking, far more open. One of the best people that can, if you ever want to read more into it, is um, Henry Kissinger talking about football. Henry Kissinger is a massive football fan. I didn't realize that, and he was saying how he preferred football in the nineteen fifties because it was more open and there was less defence and there was more, in his mind, there was more to it. I think the flip side of that argument is that what that it was almost too open. So that effectively, where Brazil were able to be so dominant, because not only were they so fantastic, skillfully, is that there was n- none of the teams they were playing against really had the ability to sort of stop them, or the tactical nows to be able to limit them. So, in effect, they were early adapters, but they, because of their advantages in terms of most of the players would be playing around sort of Sao Paulo and Rio, where a lot of the teams were based. So it allowed them to they they had an element of closeness that let's say a an English team wouldn't have. An English team would have players from the north, players from the south, and there wouldn't be the same level of familiarity that the Brazil teams had, and none of those teams had the same skills. And the opposition weren't able to really stop them. Which is you know, so they have an inbuilt advantage, and that inbuilt advantage is slowly ebbs away. So 58, by the time you get to 62, you know, it's football is trending close. There's there's more tactics involved, there's better sort of fitness, it's moving towards the sort of modern age. And really the best tactical team of those you know three teams that win the World Cup is the 70 team. They're the best team, and they almost have to be. I mean, the even bit advantage that the 70 team has that allows them to win the tournament with such ease is that it's played in Mexico, and it's played in, during the day at the hottest time, and it's played at altitude, which means that the European teams don't have anywhere near the... the Ability to compete on an even, but it's not an even playing field. So Brazil, seventy, are fantastic, brilliant footballers, and they deservedly win the tournament. At somewhat close to a canter, but had that tournament, let's say, been played in Europe, the Brazilian team would have still been. I I still think would have won, but it would have been a lot closer. So the Germans, the English. And the Italians, I think, would oppose more of a threat. I mean, 66 is the sort of outlier in the sense that they don't win it. And 66 is fascinating in the sense that they're, they're favourites because they've obviously won 58 and 62. They've got Pele. They've got all these fantastic players. But what happens is that they almost basically get kicked out of the tournament. In the, they, they play the Portuguese, and the Portuguese are just insanely aggressive. And you... You could pro- there. There is some element. You know, if you ask a Brazilian about nineteen sixty six, they will tell you that it was the worst tournament ever. That the refereeing was insanely biased, and that they just allowed Brazil to be kicked out. I, I think there's an. <clears throat> it's difficult. I mean, I watched some of the the, the highlights, and the, the Portuguese were very rough, but I don't think the tournament as a whole was dirty, and I don't think it's anywhere near. Let's say the um, battle at Santiago in the sixty two World Cup. Uh, it's it's unfair in the, in the sense that Pelé gets targeted by the Portuguese defenders. There's a very sad clip of uh, one of their games. I think it was against Portugal where he basically got injured. And at that time, there's no subs. So he goes off and they just strap some ice around his knee. A huge ice pack around his knee. And he goes out there and he trots out there. And he can not He can barely walk. He can barely move. But he's still out there. And after the end of that, when they got knocked out, he says, I'm never playing in a World Cup again after this And eventually he ends up getting persuaded to return for 1970. And he knows in his heart that that's his last World Cup. So I think, so that's some elements of the thing. So you've got this national pride, which I'll I'll go into in a little bit detail a bit later. But there's also a, a sense of money. So in other words, when Pelé becomes this sort of, he becomes the first global sports star in the sense that you've got TV, you've got radio, and you've got the ability for a World Cup to be consumed by more people than any of the other previous World Cups. And as a result, what happens is that his domestic club, Santos, weaponize him. So basically they go on these huge long European and global tours. And by tour, I mean they would go to England and they would play all throughout England. So in other words. And Europe. And the Soviet Union. All around the world. And the, you'd be playing a game every sort of two to three days. And the vast majority of these crowds are there to see Pele. Which is what makes Pele who he, he is. In the same sense that. It's the, the best thing that. The most interesting thing about the Pele and Maradona argument. Is that they don't like each other. And the, it's one of the most interesting is you can understand entirely why they don't like each other. so Pele, from the age of 17, becomes this globally renowned football player, and Brazil won their first World Cup. So he's a national hero, and he's globally known because that World Cup was hosted in Europe and was just you know with TV, with you know, with things such as you know, news at, at cinemas, people saw his skills, and he just had a, you know a preternatural level of skill that a, that a 17 year old wasn't supposed to have. And rather than just go back and play for Santos and, you know, wait for the next World Cup, they go on all of these long tours all throughout the late fifties and sixties. And as a result, he he's very aware that in effect he becomes almost a monarchy, but his is not the his monarchy is a performance related one. So in other words, he only gets, you know, he has to perform for all of these crowds. All of these crowds are there to see him. So there must have been a huge sort of pressure on him to always be fantastic, to always do something that would leave that crowd in complete awe so that they didn't ask for their money back, so that Santos would then be, I suppose, what, re-invited again in a few years. So there must have been that huge pressure to you know, maintain his level of performance and that he would have to be in the Brazil team because if he's not in the Brazil team, then it all kind of stops. And so, where, and this is where his last World Cup is probably the most interesting one. Is that you end up in a scenario where, you know, in nineteen sixty four Brazil falls into a dictatorship, and that link between national pride and dictatorship that was in some ways there in in nineteen fifty is still almost there. In other words, the dictatorship are quite aware that you know the that to keep the sort n- of. N- to keep the nation happy and to project what they want to project globally, you need a successful Brazilian national team, especially because the 70 is held in Mexico. So it's as close to a, you know, home World Cup as they're going to get for, you know, an extended period of time. So as a result, there is a huge amount of pressure on, on him and the players to win because they become used to winning. And it's one of the most interesting things is that while their brazilian football is all about joy on a if you look at it from far away or you all if you just imagine it, you think samba football you think of all of the the best skills that you've ever seen in sort of hi, world cup highlights but when you actually get into it and you think about the things like the, the santos tours and even you know in the last sort of t- last 15 20 years how you know the brazilian um, football federation sold the national team rights fret to a Russian company, so you had all of these weird friendlies where where basically Brazil were playing all of these friendlies, but none of them were anywhere near Brazil. They were all they were being played in England. They were being played all over the world, you know, so that this Russian company could sell the rights and get the money from the, you know, all of these FAs and some some of them in Africa, some of them all across the world who actually wanted to get the Brazilian... Essentially, the Brazilian national team became a for higher organisation. And obviously, just, you know, a certain cut of that money got to Brazi- the Brazilian National Federation. And there was obviously was probably a huge amount of bribery involved on some level. So, I always think of Pelé almost in a way as... as, as I've said monarchy... If you compare him to Maradona, what it really comes down to is is that Pele is the is the responsible older brother, so he's the one that understands that you know for his own role and the national pride and the politics and the dictatorship element of it is that he they have to win and they have to win in a certain way to maintain his, his position, whereby Maradona's experiences. Are also shaped by dictatorship, but in a completely separate way. So, in other words, he basically first comes to prominence just before the Seventy Eight World Cup. Seventy Eight World Cup is hosted in Argentina, and the Junta are using that as a way again global power projection. But they don't know anything about football. They're not particularly interested in football. Essentially, for them, yeah, brilliant. If if you know Argentina need to you know host this tournament and needs to look fantastic so the world can see that this junta are not what they've been described as they want to win but it's not necessarily the end of the universe but it's more about the tournament looking good to from the from the outside looking in and he's not selected he's he's almost too young and they don't want to risk it so as a result the junta aren't particularly interested in Diego Maradona they win there's always some question marks over some of the refereeing... And the pressure to put on... And Argentina gets to the final against the Dutch. Whenever you discuss... 78 is is a very dis, awkward thing for Argentina as a whole to deal with. Because usually when a country wins a World Cup at home... It's it's a joyous thing. It's just the absolute culmination of everything you could ever possibly want. But for Argentina 78 you can't separate it from the junta. i think there's i remember reading this one article where it's basically a the final and it's being held in the stadium and just round the corner there is a essentially a prison a political prison so all of these political prisoners are sitting there in their cells and they can hear the crowd from the world cup being hosted you know, maybe 4 500 meters away and they're having a debate whether they should be supporting Argentina because effectively the Argentine government have imprisoned these people, they have murdered people at, in you know on a wholesale level, and they're using football to you know pacify the populace and to project to the world. And so there's some people arguing, yep. Yeah, it's the football is nothing to do with the Junta, and I'm an Argentine. I want them to win. But the flip side of it is, no. How can you possibly? These people are now, you know, being used as a symbol by the Junta. So there's a lot of. You can't separate in in. in I think domestically in Argentina, you cannot separate seventy eight from the Junta. So what happens is, is that there is a certain amount of, I think, melancholy and ambivalence about the seventy eight. So basically, by the time you get to the eighty two World Cup. The Junta have fallen, and Maradona has, a couple of years previously, left, and has been playing in Europe. So he immediately comes out in the A2 World Cup, has a fantastic tournament. And so as a result, at no point has is the Junta anything to do with Maradona, and they're not interested. In other words, for them... He's just he is just a, a gift from God. In other words, you know when when you win a World Cup, usually the team drop off because you know some of the players you know retire, and you it's very difficult to remotivate. It's it's just difficult to retain a World Cup, especially if the World Cup's not being played in Latin America. It's being played in Europe. All of the difficulties with that. What Maradona says is actually don't worry about that. He can maintain this. He says he is the next footballing genius that and will lead the team. So, you know, as a fact, he's at no point is he ever seen as a symbol of the Junta. And he's basically the irresponsible younger brother, whereby Pele has all of these bits and pieces that he has to, you know, work around. He has to basically, you know, Santos make a huge amount of money out of all of these tours, of which Pele doesn't see a huge amount of it. You know, the national pride and, you know, the political side of it. All of these things have to be basically appeased for him to go out there and he has to perform to keep all of those different sectors happy, effectively. Whereby, with Maradona, the difference is, is that he's almost... That's why he becomes such an icon. It's not just because he's such a brilliant football player. What it is, is that what he offers is an untainted superstar. In other words, he comes from the poor part. You know, he comes from a sort of poor barrier. And then he rises to the absolute top, and you know he's, in some ways, he's the exact opposite of what a dictator would see in a football player. He is completely individual. I mean, he basically the teams play really brilliantly well because they're playing through him, and you know he doesn't. He sticks it to authority. That's why he, you know, his numbers in Barcelona are fantastic. But his off-field behaviour in terms of women, cocaine, alcohol, you know just reckless behaviour, is so much that eventually, basically, Barcelona are left with a choice. They can either put all of their chips into Maradona and basically deal with the consequences of his behaviour, which at some point then puts Maradona a couple of notches above the club. And actually, they decide, you know what, Barcelona is just more important than Maradona, no matter how talented he is, and they ship him out to Napoli. And Napoli is what makes Maradona, is that if you put him in, like, a Barcelona, a fantastic team, what, what a massive team, where there's a certain amount of expectation and the players around you are good, he was fantastic, but it doesn't quite work. But if you stick him in... Na- naples and napoli where they've never won anything it, it's actually a massive coup that they've managed to spend all of this money to get him there in other words the north is the the powerhouse of italian football so you've got inter ac juventus you know the south is you know, the impoverished part of italy the bit that never wins the Scudetto. and he comes there and they just love him unconditionally and he leads the team and he They slowly but surely get better and better until they win the Scudetto. And he's the the leader of it. And as a result, he's so good and they love him so much, they don't particularly care about his behaviour. In other words, Maradona's skill is being so fantastic that people let him off the fact he might not have turned up to training for three days, that he might have just gone on a bender, or he might be hungover, or that his behaviour in town might be sh- shockingly scandalous, where it doesn't work at Barcelona, and it probably wouldn't have worked in 78. But actually, by the time you hit to 82 and 86, he, he's this national hero, and that he's on, he's, he basically symbolises anti-dictatorship. He really says whatever he feels, he does whatever he wants, and he's proudly Argentine, and at no point is he ever you could you ever compare could, you couldn't link him to the Junta in any way to a certain extent. And so what I find fascinating is that they're both Pele and Maradona are both geniuses in different ways. In other words, Maradona needs to have that element of it has to be go through him. In other words, there's no other way Napoli are winning the title. There's no other way that some of the sort of lesser-talented Argentine teams, let's say 90 more than 86, but he's the one that has to basically drag these teams for his own, you know, anarchic genius. And I think the interesting thing is when you, when you compare sort of Pele and Maradona, is the end of their careers. So in other words what happens is, is that Pelé, you know, essentially, 70 is his last World Cup. You've then got, he then goes to the New York Cosmos in the NASL. It, and it has, a, again, another royal touch to it. In other words, he's he goes on this sort of one last royal progress to the you know outer edges of the footballing empire. So in other words, and, he's, and what he does is, he plays an enorm enormous role in developing football in America. Football's always had a, a foothold in America. It's just differences is, is that so you have something like the U.S. Open Cup, which is their equivalency of the FA Cup, and that's been going. On, you know, it's one of the oldest cup competitions in the world. You know, obviously nowhere near the FA Cup, but cl- within that kind of sort of time frame, you know, sort of 20, late nineteenth, early twentieth century, and. So it's always there, and you always have these hotbeds, and it's the difference is that what soccer doesn't have, which all of the other American sports has, is that it it existed almost underground. So it was still there, and it was still important, but it was something that you didn't see in any of the newspapers, or in any of the you know, television or movies. It was something that was just... In other words, it was very much an immigrant sort of experience. But it wouldn't have penetrated the culture, you know, the consciousness of the average American. And something when Pele turns up and when NASL spend, you know, a lot of, the team spend a lot of money getting all the these stars in, Pele is the one that shines brightest. He's the one that's in New York. And it shows you just the level of his superstardom is that even if there was just minimal sort of coverage of football, people did know that there was basically a Brazilian footballer called Pele who was fantastic. He was one of the first sports stars to penetrate into the consciousness of of the average American in a in a way. And whereby Maradona's sort of career ends very much, you know, he he eventually goes home, but it's all very chaotic and in the end, you know, the in the ninety four World Cup where, you know, he ends up having to lose a huge amount of weight and, you know, he's no longer the player he once was. But he the he's become such an icon in Argentina that they, they're almost desperately willing him to have one last crack because, you know, the World Cup in ninety four is in America and it's about as close as they're going you know, as Argentina are gonna get within, you know, the next two generations for there to be a home World Cup. And it's just it's that desire. Even if you look at the actual Argentine '94 World Cup squad, they don't necessarily actually really need Maradona, but he's become such an icon, and he becomes so important to you know the Argentine, exp- you know, footballing experience that they just, you know, almost through sheer power will, trying to will him to one last moment of glory before he eventually you know goes off into the, you know, the, retirement off a, off into the the distance. And and it doesn't work. It ends in tragedy because you know, eventually you know his dissolute you know past catches up to him. You know he's ended up taking you know performance enhancing and drugs, and he's thrown out of the tournament in disgrace. And I think what what's interesting is that you've got these two brilliant attacking players, and you know Pele is part of you know these. Beautiful, brilliant Brazil teams. You've got Maradona, who's the fulcrum of some more workmanlike teams. Teams that just need that kind of level of. In the end, Maradona defines nineteen eighties football. I think with the greats, they fit into their time in a sporting sense and in a societal sense. So you see, there's a reason why I haven't picked Cruyff or Beckenbauer. Now, if I was going to have a European. Mount Rushmore they would both be on it because actually if you look at the totality of Cruyff what he means is is that he helps create the great Ajax team he then which then bleeds into the great national teams of the 74 and 78 total football and then in his later career and then he then takes that to, to Barcelona so if you just take his playing career you know he he's basically created a a youth system that in Ajax is still felt even now. And, you know, you can trace to the, the some of the key elements of total football to the 95 Ajax team that wins the Champions League, European Cup. And even now, some of the successes that Ajax have had in terms of their player development is from, you know, Johan Cruyff. And the style that Barcelona played because when he goes there as a player before they sign Maradona he then changes the way how Barcelona think and play and then when he comes back as manager he then completely changes the way how La Meister, the youth system and that then creates a a great Barcelona team which then sets it in motion that the sort of tiki-taka under Guardiola because Guardiola is taught by Cruyff but as such that's at a European level. It doesn't really have as much of an impact at global level. I think the, the, the closest person you could put, maybe, would be Beckenbauer. Because he then, you know, essentially, in certain ways, refines total football. But he adds more of a, a spine to it. It's And so his Bayern Munich team are the next great Domestic European team. His team in 1974 beats the Dutch in the World Cup final. And he then takes it on. And even though the, the, the Germans have success, they get to the 82 World Cup final. They get through to the 86 and 90. But they only win it in 90. It's not quite the same. They have great players like Gerd Muller. They, they have this they're there and thereabouts throughout that entire kind of era but what they lack is a brilliant player. Someone that just jumps above the level. I mean, you have it in, in Beckenbauer, but by 74, that's really his last kind of hurrah because eventually, in the late 70s, he's playing out in the NASL with Pele. So, essentially, what Cruyff and Beckenbauer... They, they create these great teams of the 70s, and the 70s is a fantastic era in terms of ideals, it does kind of match what was going on sort of societally to an extent, culturally I would say, more than societally. And but what they don't do is they don't really predict what happens in the 1980s and the physicality. And it's really the Argentines. So the difference is, is that the the greatest difference that you can say about what de- defines and Differentiates Pele from Maradona is that Pele becomes the first footballing superstar, first global su- sporting superstar, without ever actually leaving Brazil. He just plays for Santos. When he flows in his final kind of hurrah, it's just actually a few hours, you know, up into North America where he plays out in New York. Although he travels the world as part of almost you know the footballing equivalent of the Harlem Globetrotters with the Brazilian national team and Santos. It's not quite the same. He's still always based in, you know, he always comes home to Brazil, whereby. And that's because really in that time period between 58 and 17 is that the Brazilians, because they are so much better than everybody else and because the world is not really globalized at this point there's not even the embryonic parts of it really basically at that time your national team was really essentially all the players were based in that country they played domestic there wasn't you know there was very few transfers you know okay in sort of the late 50s and 60s there were some foreign players in Italy but by that point Italy weren't a dominant international team and it was very pro so in other words the English players were just there because they were getting good money in the sense that In Britain, you had a maximum wage. So, in that sense, whereby with Maradona, the reason he becomes the next global football superstar is primarily because he doesn't stay in Argentina. And this is really what leads on to, I think, the great differences is the Maradona teams of the 80s and the Brazilian teams from really 74 to nineteen in terms of pure World Cups. What happens is, you have Brazil peak in 70 by the time you get to 74 and 78 what's really happened is is that the game has become slightly more professional more tactical and in effect more european so what's happened is is that you get the great dutch team that comes from the that is you know like i said bled in from the great Ajax team that basically wins three European Cups in a row. And although they're influenced by 70, they have a different take on it. And that's something that has basically been created domestically and at European level. And they then have this kind of titanic battle in a 74 World Cup final between the Dutch of total football and the beckenbauer germans and because the the germans in terms of Bayern munich and beckenbauer are the next great footballing team because they then go on and win three european cups in a row they sort of take over they take the mantle from ajax and holland and they win the 74 world cup final germans are slightly more defensive but they they had theirs is a similar take on it but a diff you know it's a, it's not quite as beautiful and it's not quite as technical, but it's it's a little bit more hard-nosed. It's a bit more, you know, winning is the key element to it, whereby with, I think the classic one is the 74, the start of the 74 World Cup final, the Dutch want to humiliate the West Germans. They, you know, there's an element of politics, an element of history on it. And they, you know, they kick off and they're 1-0 up before the Germans have even touched the ball. But it's the Germans in the end who end up you know, grinding them down and getting the result. Whereby the Brazilian team, because they're, they're not as good, you know, they don't have the same level of players they did in 58, 62 and 70, and they're not able to compete at that kind of level because football is now more, slightly more defensive. It is more tactical. It is, the fitness is better things like the European Cup have become far more ingrained whereby domestically Latin American football isn't at that kind of level. And so what happens is <clears throat> is that so and where the Argentines and this is primarily Maradona because if you really want to talk about it Maradona becomes the 1980s. He defines that era because basically the 80s football is very tough. It's very physical, and what you have is is that that then creates these very tight defensive teams. Because then that's when Italian football, you know, from eighty two to sort of the mid nineties, that because you know they become sort of the the dominant you know force in European game because you know the money that they're spending because of the foreign players are able to get. And so the defensiveness. But what that then creates is when you have such defensiveness and when you have such physicality is that you almost have out of that kind of tough surface is that you get these beautiful flowers. So you end up with players like Platini, Liam Brady, you know, Maradona, who are able to, by just pure genius, are able to overcome this physicality and win games almost on their own because, you know, the Serie A is a very low-scoring league whereby if you score 15, 20 goals, not only can you win the league, you'd be the top goal scorer. And players like Blatini and Maradona do that and Juventus and Napoli, respectively, are really successful. And so because of his, you know, because of his move to Europe, because of, you know, that kind of grounding at Barcelona and Napoli... That's what you know really makes Maradona kick on as a player, whereby if you compare it to, let's say, the Brazilian teams, these hopelessly romantic, beautiful Brazilian teams, because the advantages that the Brazil team had from 58 to 70 have now dissipated. And because, you know, even if there is some elements of globalization, some elements where there are players moving from country to country, it's still not really kicked on so if you think about it but the difference is is that the argentine players are able to do it because of you know the history between argentina and italy and the culture between argentina and spain and the same language they're able to move and even a couple of them to england so you've got ricky villier and Ozzy Ardiles. yeah they move to spurs maradona goes and a couple of other their players who end up in the 82 86 and 90 they play out in spain and in italy and so they're able to grasp that in a way, the Brazilians don't, so the Brazilians are staying at home, and so and there's an element of politics to it. In other words, those the teams that sort of Zico leads, they're almost they're quite political in a certain way. In other words, for them, almost these because football is changing because it's becoming you know there's more money involved. In other words, the huge transfer fees between between you know Barcelona and when they buy Maradona and when Napoli buy Maradona from barcelona there's more money involved there's more and even something like the nasl in america there's huge amounts of money going into that and as a result but the players aren't really receiving that money so in other words the brazilian players are mainly staying at home and they're they've almost they go back to to sort of basics so they decide they're going to still play the brazilian way play this beautiful football despite the fact that the The game has moved into a far more defensive era, which means that they play fantastically and they capture the imagination and the hearts of viewers, because basically, even in between 74 and 90, you don't get to see these teams other than the World Cup. And they've still got this air because of their kit, because of the the style and the names. Well, but at least with Maradona he he was far more recognisable because he was playing in Italian football and people in this, in this country specifically could watch Italian football. It was something that you did see European Cup games and all the rest of it. There was still an element of mystery about it. And there's almost an element of politics to it, is that Zico in his almost sort of left-wing kind of way is saying, well, actually the the players don't get any money out of this. And actually almost the winning almost has links back to dictatorship and the way how football is the way how football is moving. And so it's almost a very romantic sort of count argument behind it. They they're rebelling against sort of European professionalism and sort of dictatorship and the element that, you know, winning the World Cup was almost, you know, a way of keeping dictatorship. You know, it was the links between that in a way. And so it's only by the time you get to ninety four that you actually get A change where basically what you have is you have the element of power projection, national pride, money and the players. They're all finally linked in together in the sense that 94 World Cup is, again, the closest thing to a home World Cup for at least almost a generation for Brazil. They haven't won. The Argentines have been successful. They're the ones that were basically able to adapt to the eighties. In Maradona, you know, was defined the eighties because he was the one brilliant midfielder that was able to come overcome the physicality, the tackling, the back passes, all the rest of it, and to win. And because he and the Argentines had embraced Europe in a way that the Brazilians hadn't, and you know, in the sense that the rebelling of the Zico teams is prizing style over results. Because, in effect, the only way that they can link themselves to those successful teams, because they don't win, is to focus on the style. Whereby, by the time you get to 94, the difference is is that Italia 90 is the apex of that football. It's in Italy. It's the lowest-scoring World Cup ever. There's lots of dirty tackling. It is not a beautiful thing to watch. And television is becoming more important. And the global audience is becoming more important. So FIFA say, okay, we're going to basically change the game. We're going to outlaw the tackle from behind. We're going to outlaw back passes. The game's going to become more open. At which point that's going to basically play more into the hands of Brazil and you know a more open style of football. But they then meet them halfway. They split the difference. They become more, you know, defensively strong. Because the players in effect now are able to say if we win the World Cup there's the national pride. You know Brazil's a democracy now. It's not going to prop up dictatorship. <laughs> The the fans are desperate for winning. And also there's money in it for us. Because it's not just winning the World Cup. Because basically, Pele's team could just win the World Cup and that was national pride. And that's really all they were playing for. There was, you know, an element of money, but nothing major. Whereby, you know, for the 94 team, if you won the World Cup, that would then help you move to Europe, where you have things like the European Cup, where you have more money involved, bigger stadiums, more infrastructure, more fans, and the chance of glory so and it it's then a lot easier and then they go and win and so it's just hugely important but the no one's going to pretend much in the same way and it's on a slightly lower level is that 94 is more isn't a team that is wonderfully supported in Brazil and uh, well remembered because in fact they they actually they just get over the line they went on a penalty shootout they just did what they had to do to win whereby whereby it opens up the door for, you know, more Brazilian players to, to move to Europe, which then improves their standard of play, which then means by the time they, the, the 98 team that gets to the World Cup final and doesn't win is just exponentially better than the 94 team that actually did win it. Which then really comes down to the... Because we, you can see that basically Pele's career just um, almost sort of overlaps with uh, Maradona's career. And the the, the people that really kind of bridge that gap uh, on a European level uh, is really Cruyff and Beckenbau. And they're on the European, you know, Mount Rushmore. What you end up being, and then obviously Maradona by 94, that's his final World Cup, and, you know, that's the last time he's seen on a sort of global level. And really, the, the last two people on my list. Yeah, you know, the last last two people on Mount Rushmore is Messi and Ronaldo, Cristiano, but that leaves that kind of gap, really between sort of the early nineties and the early two thousands when you know Ronaldo and then Messi start to come out, and while there's only four people on Mount Rushmore, what I'm there, there's a fifth beetle, uh, and that's original Ronaldo. Because he's at the 94 World Cup, but he's a non-playing... He was basically brought into that squad because they saw him as the future, and being part of that squad would be a sort of fantastic experience. And he's the one that that bridges it, but he's a bridge to nowhere. In other words, his performances are so fantastic and are so brilliant at his absolute peak when he's at Barcelona and Inter Milan and the 98 World Cup until the final, where he has the horrible... Um, Epileptic fit and plays in the World Cup final, but isn't able to affect the game. He's barely able to move. But he doesn't beget Messi and and Cristiano Ronaldo. What What he is, is that basically either you can define your era like Maradona does in the 80s in terms of being the apex attacking midfield player that can drag a team almost single-handedly to the scudetto and that can drag a team to a world cup final by his talent and ability to overcome. In other words, if you just stick Maradona out in modern football, his weight and his behavior, he wouldn't last 5 minutes at top level football. But if you then flipped the the the, the flip, flip the switch on it and put Messi into 1980s football, he wouldn't last 5 minutes because he is, you know, he's he's just, you know, too physically unable to compete at that with, that, with the tackles that you know a Maradona would have received and the abuse and all the other bits that would have probably meant that, you know, where they are and the lack of medical treatment and all the rest of it, is that Maradona has to be that strong and beefy because it's a really physical game in terms of it's violent. <laughs> you know, in Spain and to a an less, slightly lesser extent Italy, but you will have stoppers and people that will take you out of the game to win. Whereby, in modern football, you, you can't do that. I mean, it isn't possible. And, and Ronaldo defines the 90s, and slight, to an extent the, the early 2000s, is that, for, for me, the 90s is... You know, football becomes a lot more attacking. But it doesn't necessarily lead to a, a tactical revolution. Because, you know, the, the teams... You know, you can still have a thing like the 94 European Cup final between AC Milan and... Barcelona it's, it's there's not a huge amount of you know the the, the formations are fairly standard i mean you go like a rigo sacchi in 442 you know it's there are tactical managers out there and they're geniuses but it's not they haven't really breached the the they haven't reached the third that there's no third dimension really to it you know players are still great and but you still have Wingers, you still have strikers that score goals, and what Ronaldo does is that he's so fantastic at it. He's got that kind of you know, he's he's like a, a Pele in the terms that he's got that just original you know, when he's at Barcelona, he's got that just that pace and the ability to control it at that pace and then to finish. And because in England, you had all of these fantastic strikers, so you've got. You know, like Ferdinand, Fowler, you know, Shearer, Sherinham, you know, Yeah, you know, all of these, you know, Andy Cole. All of these strikers are able to score 20, 25 goals. Sometimes they have like an attacking midfielder, like a Peter Beardsley, or they have a couple of wingers like Stuart Ripley and Jason Wilcox, and you know, supplying you. So in other words, the striker is the one that basically finishes off the, the, the job. And Ronaldo is brilliant at it. And it's interesting that the one thing that he leaves is that you know his defining record is he becomes in his final World Cup the highest goal scorer ever at a World Cup, and it's you know it's lasted years this record, and you think oh my god this was a record that could you know last a couple of generations, and it's fascinating that actually his record doesn't last very long at all, and that it actually ends up being won by, you know it ends up being over- eclipsed by Miroslav Klose, who is, and I'm not being mean to Miroslav Klose in this sense, he's just an average striker. <laughs> you know, his domestic career is fairly average, but, you know, he is just, he becomes the classic example of, you know, German ingenuity. He's not the greatest striker in the world, however, if you put it on in the right spots for him, he'll score the goals. And that's, in effect, what why he becomes just the bridge, but it's a bridge to nowhere. In other words, the the, the when he wins it, his first world cup as a player when he's as a playing member of the squad in 2002 he doesn't lead on to anything actually the players that sort of become the progenators in a way of Messi and Ronaldo is actually Rivaldo and Ronaldinho and that's that. that's the interesting point see whereby Ronaldo defines that sort of bridge period of the 90s and early 2000s it's fascinating that if you look at all the clubs that he played for domestically in you know when he's at Barcelona they have some success but it's not until really the late 90s early 2000s that they actually win a European Cup and that they go on to you know have this dominating period under Rijkaard and Guardiola okay so he moves to Inter Milan and yeah, you know, they don't win under him. He still does brilliant well. But he has a whole couple of his horrible knee injuries. And it's actually they only really win massively under Mourinho when they do the treble and under Zlatan. OK, so then he moves to Real Madrid. Well, they've already had that success before he joins. But, he, you know, that team's, you know, although they're filled with stars, they're not the team, you know, it, he doesn't win the European Cup. And that's the fascinating thing is that although he's very successful at club level, scores a load of goals, plays for some fantastic teams, he never wins the European Cup. You know. Which I think is. And his ultimate record ends up getting eclipsed by, you know, a striker in who does the same job as he did, but who that type of striker is is far more, is becoming less and less. You, you're, what you're now getting, you've now been transcended because this is what Ronaldo and Messi have done is that they have functionally changed what football. In other words, you had strikers like I've said in the nineties who were scoring just hatfuls of goals, you know, like a Shevchenko, you know, you Cliverts, those sort of players. But now what you're getting is you never had an image. You you could imagine a striker getting thirty goals in a season. You couldn't imagine someone get, getting fifty goals. All the sort of wholesale hat tricks that people like Messi and Ronaldo are doing. And the fact that they're doing it in different positions is that really, you know, Ronaldo starts out as a winger, a conventional winger, and eventually ends up becoming this hybrid attacker. The the, the fascinating thing about Lionel Messi is that what Messi ends up doing is he every single one of his seasons looks exactly the same. It seems to be the same amount of numbers, same amount of hat-tricks, same amount of assists, but he does it in all different ways. Sometimes he'll play more centrally, sometimes he'll play more like a 10, depending on who he, you know, the, the playing squad and what the team are doing. Sometimes he plays out more on the left, sometimes he drops a bit deeper. Every single year he seems to be making just subtle changes that actually, on the surface, look like nothing has changed at all and that Messi is still scoring the goals. And all of these players you know, have an element of narrative in terms of, you know, Pele, when making his comeback from injury after the 66 World Cup, wins it in 70 in style. The the sense that, you know, with Maradona, that where he had his greatest successes is when there was an element of the underdog, which required him to be the the number 10, to be the heart and soul, and to, by sheer force of will and creative imagination, take these teams and to lift the level of football, you know, from the, the elements of the... Turgidness, you know, of some elements of nineteen eighties football, and this is, and so as a result, whereby Ronaldo doesn't lead to anything else. Original Ronaldo, Cristiano and Lionel Messi have are creating this whole different brand of footballers. So you've got players like Neymar, Bale. Bale starts out as a left back. They then push him a bit further up to a left midfielder. But once you then see what Ronaldo and Messi can do. He then, you know, it took him about a year, maybe a little time, maybe less than 18 months, but more than a year, to then move. I I remember at times Spurs, we were singing Gareth Bell, he plays on the wing because he wasn't originally successful when he cut inside. But in his last year at Spurs, he then just became this, you know, absolutely blossomed into this destructive force. He was someone who could play on the wing at times, but he could play centrally, he could play as a 10, he could play with all different types of players and could score goals at an almost wholesale kind of level and all of the, the tactical changes that as a result, you know, put people like Guardiola and and the element that then they've created a sort of counter-revolution in Mourinho and his sort of defensive tactics at certain, on certain regards. I've discussed that in sort of previous kind of podcasts. And I think this is the fascinating thing that I really kind of want to end on, is that if you look at it and you start out at you know Pele at fifty eight, and to the present day, is that that kind of essentially sixty years worth of of footballing history can be explained in five players, all of without there being essentially a gap. So you have Pele from the fifty eight until the late seventies when he's doing that kind of his royalty, you know in New York to then you get the, the late 70s when, you know, Maradona first breaks onto the scene and then he has the, kind of the 80s. And then, you know, when his career is just about ending, at that point you've got Ronaldo then then kind of spans that time period. I think the point why you don't put Ronaldo on there, why I've described him as the fifth Beatle, is that his period of time was just a little bit too short. You know, he, his absolute peak was really... I'd say ninety five to maybe uh, ninety nine to two thousand. He's successful in two thousand two, but not quite in the same way. And he doesn't he doesn't create anything from that. In the end, football moves on. He bridges it, but it's really Ronaldo and Messi who have now fundamentally altered footballing history and what people conceive of, of what football can now create. You now have false number nines. You now have, you know, players that can play all over you can tactically do it can do virtually anything so you can have you know attacking midfielders you can have a strike you, there's so many different things that you can do and players are now pushing the boundaries of what you can and cannot do onto a football pitch and that's then shifted how teams play tactically so you now have you can have high lines and it just leaves a fantastic kind of interesting point is that who, how is football now going to change what what is going to who is now going to next take on the mantle you know because we are now reaching the point where Messi and Ronaldo you know are, are in the sort of swung songs of their career and you know whether the future is going to be Neymar and what Neymar is going to do or whether it's someone we haven't even seen yet I mean we may well have the comeback of the traditional striker if you look at someone like you know what Harry Kane's doing and it's whether that's and I think the interesting thing I'm going to end on is really I've described, I've put Mount Rushmore as kind of players. And I think the real question is, is whether the, it's going to be a manager or a player that's going to be, you know, who's going to lead the next stage on. So in other words, who is going to, you know, who is going the next great talent going to be? Is it someone that's going to be created by a manager or is the player going to create the system that is essentially used by a manager? Thanks a lot.